Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb, and I'm here with Adam, and I'm Daryl. And today's topic is uh, it's gonna be a fun one. It's pretty interesting, I think, and well, it kind of helps you think about things a little differently, I'd say. And uh, today's topic is gonna be about communion of the saints. Good. Yeah, communion of the saints. Communion of the saints. Chilling out with my homeboys, you know what I'm saying? And home gals. Don't forget <laughs> the home gals. That's nice, Caleb. <laughs> That's good, buddy. But so I guess we're going to go ahead and start off. I think for this topic, we should probably start off at least basic because a lot of times, like at least I didn't know it, like even what a saint is. So mm. it may sound so for everybody, everybody calm down. All right. If you already know what it is, just hold on a second. All right. We're trying to help everybody else out here. Take a we, pause. Right. But I think we should start off with something simple. Like what is actually a saint? Okay. So in the New Testament, uh, the saints refers to every single member of the body of Christ. Everybody's a saint. Uh, Agios, right? The holy ones. Everybody is a saint. Uh, and who's in Christ is a saint. There's not a particular class of people amongst the body who are saints and who are not, biblically speaking. So everybody's a saint. And then when you go back and you read the Old Testament and you see phrases in the Psalms about, you know, God uh, taking his counsel or sitting, you know, taking a seat amongst the counsel of the holy ones of the saints, Right. So when you go back and you start to read canonically, you recognize that there is uh, something going on with the saints and even with their partnership with God in the heavenly council. Okay. And Paul, in as much as saying the same thing in Ephesians 2, when he says that we've been raised up with Christ, you know, we're in Christ, seated with him in heavenly places talking about that heavenly council, and John's doing the same thing in Revelation 20. Saints, in this sense, biblically speaking, is a reference to everybody who is in Christ. We can all properly be called saints. Now, over the course of Christian history, the term saint began to be applied to people who actively obeyed the gospel to the fullest of their capacity and burned through all the grace they could receive from God. And there was a reliance and a trust that these particular people that when they died uh, didn't have a long experience at a judgment seat, so to speak, and were immediately in the beatific vision, and they were praying on our behalf. And so you end up with a process for canonization in the Roman Catholic Church, meaning there's a means that they have that they look into the life of somebody and their doctrine to see if they're legitimately what they call a saint in that they're reigning in heaven right now. And as, for, as far as Rome is concerned, they're not in purgatory or the experience of purgation. The Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't, doesn't have that same system. So you see in the Orthodox churches, if somebody's obeyed the gospel, they've lived a holy life and they've passed away, they, they very often recognize that sanctity and that heroic form of Christian service as saintliness. Um, Protestants, well, there's a buckshot. So which which version of Protestant or evangelical are we talking about? That's always the difficulty. Uh, so in the Anglican Church, being Protestant, you have some of that variety. But then also by maintaining to our, our you know, Catholic roots, uh, large church, you know, Catholicity, the roots there, we don't necessarily have a process to say that somebody is, quote, a saint, because uh, we could use that for as we've said, everybody who's in Christ, but there are heroes and there is a calendar. There are people that we acknowledge and, and um, honor because of their life of service and contribution to the church. So what I hear you saying is 
that we don't just fall asleep and wake up when everybody's been raptured as as many think you're saying that that oh our our afterlife experience is actually joining in and praying for those who are still yes on earth yeah 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 there's no soul sleep that got real popular um after, <laughs> at the reformation um there's no soul sleep when you soul sleep meaning a person dies and they essentially are asleep without any consciousness in any capacity until the resurrection. That's not, that's not the case. Starting in the old Testament, you see when Saul goes to the witch of Endor, that Samuel is summoned up from the grave from Sheol. He's dressed in a way that he looks like himself. His appearance looks like himself. He has the memory that he had and he has his prophetic gifting that he had. So all of the things that were characteristic of Samuel while he was live walking on the earth are still characteristics of him while he's in the grave. So absolutely. So if you see that in the old covenant, well, we have to read the covenants rightly together. The new covenant doesn't then say, oh, okay, so that's what's going on. No, the new covenant actually says this. If you believe in Christ, though you were dead, yet shall you live. So the new covenant experience of every member of the body of Christ, every saint, is much more heightened and powerful and poignant than even under the old covenant. And when you look at the revelation, I mean, it's clear, it's clear as can be that the people who are disembodied, you know, in heaven are very active, very, very active in intercession and prayer. So what you're saying is, you know, our, our grandmothers, you know, those people who were believers, very much so believers on earth, they're not just sitting there hanging out, having a giant, like, party they're actually interceding on our behalf yes but father daryl i thought heaven was just my best life experiences just on repeat over and over again you know the sad thing is man there's so much uh false discipleship that gets done by movies and tv that's what people think you're not sitting on a cloud you know uh eating cream cheese and strumming a harp that's that's not what's going on you are in heaven and heaven scripturally is is pictorially given to us in the in the temple moses's tabernacle and solomon's temple and then you come into the revelation and you see the same format and layout all of that's present except uh instead of a slain uh lamb passover lamb you've got the lamb of god you know so revelation four five and six on out through the whole book we see the heavenly worship patterned around this temple motif which is a true it's true truly really going on and the saints in heaven are praying truly praying so much so that the angels the angels and the saints are, are all there right around the throne of god worshiping and in revelation 8 we see that the angel uh, you know offers incense to god and john tells us that the incense is the prayer of the saints so you have angelic mediation Right. This, this is really confusing for people because they think, well, Christ is our only mediator and advocate, which is what we say in our prayer book. Yes, that's true. But remember that Christ isn't relegated or restricted to just the man who is the incarnate word, Jesus of Nazareth. Christ is the whole body of Christ, the totus Christus. So all of the angels and the saints are a part of that elect body in heaven, that church triumphant, who are engaged in interceding for what's happening right now on, on the planet. You know, that's that side of it. Um, with all the other components we could talk about, I guess, at some point. But th definitely, they're praying. They're praying. And I, I think for me, the uh, the biggest change in the way I thought 
was actually uh, the first time I experienced uh, Eucharist in with, with our, our prayer book and within the liturgy. And uh, if you don't mind, here's an excerpt right right out of it. Go for it. Uh, page uh, 132. Um, and this is, it says, Therefore we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. But all the company of heaven is like, I'm like oh, hold up, because it differentiated angels and archangels. Mm-hmm. Like, hmm, interesting. So all those, that's kind of those three categories that forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that right there, because in my mind, what, I don't know why, but the heavenly, what was happening in heaven, like that, when I, I would hear that many popular songs have that, you know, holy, holy, holy. And I was thinking, oh, that's angels. But I remember reading that in our liturgy and that just popping in all the company of heaven. And that just, that blew my mind. Like, yeah. why was not, why was I not being told this? Like, why, why was this not being emphasized? And literally, we read this every single time uh, we partake in Eucharist. Yes, because the liturgy, as we've said in the past, the liturgy is not just something, it's not just ceremonies that we're observing. The liturgy is a great thanksgiving. The liturgy is the heavenly representation i'm sorry the liturgy is the earthly representation of the heavenly reality in the same way that the temple was in the old covenant so that when the body is gathered it is constituted as the church because of the liturgy if there is no liturgy then we're, we we have to think in different categories we can't talk about the church being present and I, you can already hear somebody saying, yes, but Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Well, okay, yes, he, he did say that. And he's talking about the apostles gathering together to forgive or not to forgive sins in Matthew 18. That's the context. And the notion that there would be just groups of people gathered together outside of the, the leadership of the local church in a disconnected way from the liturgy is so foreign to the entirety of the biblical uh, narrative End to church history. That's a staggering conclusion. Now, that doesn't mean that when two or three Christians get together, the presence of Christ won't be present. Okay? I've got to clarify that. But to use that as like a, a proof text to say, no, the liturgy is not real. That's just all man-made. That's, that's, that's falsehood at, at its height. Um, and we want to avoid that. And you notice in what you quoted from the, the service there, the prepositions are really important here. With with so when we are gathered together as the body of christ we are gathered together not just in our group physically we are gathered with the heavenly host and with them we are worshiping god when thomas cranmer uh, was editing the prayer book that that phrase there uh, the angels the archangels and it didn't all the company of heaven you had a list of names that were inserted there from before the time of Gregory the Great, like, you know, Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and St. Lawrence, uh, and I believe Agnes, there was a whole list of them, that, of people that were mentioned there, and, and Kramer just abbreviates it, all the company of heaven. And there's other spots in the service there where names would be mentioned, like, it's, it's called the Synaxis, and Cyril of uh, Jerusalem talks about this when he says, when we pray for the dead. He says, he's, he's explaining what's going on in the Eucharist, and he gets right there, and he says, and this is when we pray for the be- dead, and he just goes right back on into what he's talking about. 
Well, if you don't have any concept about the ancient medieval, not medieval, Middle Eastern, you know, that Mediterranean understanding of the universe, like if you don't know what that is, and you don't know Christian history up until a couple hundred years ago, none of this makes sense. Because you think either, as it's falsely accused, it's idolatry, no. Or it's magic, no. Or it's pagan, no. It's just that the majority of the world throughout world history and today are, is not a product of the Enlightenment, which we are as Westerners in America, product of the Enlightenment. When you go back into the historic forms of the church, you see very clearly we are consciously praying with them and at times for them. Even in the, the Roman, the Orthodox, and we'll say the high Anglican tradition, you wouldn't want to use the preposition to because sometimes people, when they say they pray to the saints, they are making them like idols. But anybody who understands their doctrine, if they say they pray to the saints, they, they would use that word pray in the same way that Shakespeare uses it in his plays. I pray thee, tell me something. Like, I'm, I'm talking to you. You know, so we, we have these, these prepositional differences that we want to pay attention to. And the prayer book is emphasizing emphatically the withness of our uh, relationship to the saints in heaven, the saints in heaven. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. I, I think it's interesting because that's like, I, I like another point that kind of emphasizes this is the apostles creed. Yes. And I, I can't, I didn't realize like I, if you would have asked me before entering into the Anglican communion, do you, do you believe and affirm the apostles creed? And I'm like, well, yeah, I think, I mean, m- most would say yes. Like, is this something I'd, and, and memorize something I, I knew because it's just so universal. Um, and even in within the the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, which I know, depending on your, your circle, you know, be, before I believe this to be, oh, this is just all, it's like the universal church, everybody, everybody who calls himself a Christian. So without getting on that particularity, like, you know, regardless of your background, I think it's really hard to slice this next part, the communion of saints. Yeah. Because... Before, I'm like, the communion of saints is literally just those on earth right now, like all of us joining together in one voice, praising, mm-hmm. you know, praising God and like, and, and joining and worshiping him, you know, all the different things that entail with that. Historically, and really what this was meant, this, how this was believed for so long, completely changes what that line means, the communion of saints. They're and, it's, and, and it's right there in the creed that... I would say is universal that if you are a Christian, you're like, ah, I believe, you know, I'm a Christian, but I have a problem with the Apostles' Creed. Like, I don't know if you're really on the same team. I think we might be playing for different teams here. But this is right in there, something that I affirmed and I believed. I'm like, this is historically a statement of faith. This is why we need the Catholic form and praxis of the church. Because if you read the Bible, is it possible that you can read the Bible out the Catholic forms and practices and whatnot to the church and come away with the fullness of truth. It's possible, but it's so highly improbable that this is why we need to cleave and hold to and not innovate or change the doctrine. When uh, Look here, at the commun- like you're mentioning with the communion of the saints, what does Hebrews 12 tell us? That we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And 
that's not, and I'm, here's what people do. They have interpreted that to say, oh, that's the people in Hebrews chapter 11, which is correct textually, and we're surrounded by their example and their influence because we read about that passage. That is not what the writer is saying. Remember that it's a cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration that comes upon Christ, comes upon Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah. So the cloud is a reference to heavenly glory. And when that cloud is gone, it's only Jesus that's standing there with the three apostles. Hebrews is cluing us into the fact, because he, he, he builds on it even more, the writer does at the end of chapter 12, that we haven't come to Mount Zion, you know, that's quaking and trembling. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem with the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And so to angels dressed in festal clothing, right, to the church of the firstborn, we are with them and we are genuinely surrounded by heavenly glory in the liturgy and in the, in the course of our lives. And throughout Christian history, just as in Scripture, you have mystics, you have vision visionaries, you have seers, you have prophets, people who have, in, they have interaction with the saints. I mean, I think the Marian apparitions are probably the most well-known by a lot of people. But then you've got all the way back to Gregory Thaumaturgus, uh, the wonder worker in the late 100s, early 200s, who was known to have had visions of, of Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the Apostle John, who helped him with language that gets worked into the Nicene Creed about the persons of the Trinity. I mean, the, the interaction and overlay is incredible between heaven and earth. And we are with them you know, lift up your hearts while we lift them up to the Lord. That's Colossians 3, where Paul says, set your mind on things above where Christ is, right? So when we are caught into that heavenly reality and we're confessing we believe in the communion of the saints, we're not saying there are these people far away. What we're saying is in Christ, right? It's in the, fa- it's in the glory coming off the face of Jesus that Moses and Elijah are, are visible to Peter, James, and John. Right. And as when Jesus debates with the Sadducees and he says that, um, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, meaning not was the God of, but is the God of, which doesn't just mean that God is alive, but that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are still alive in the presence of God. And we see in the Gospels that we are alive in the presence of Christ. We're made alive in him. And so when we're receiving the Eucharist. You know, we're, we're genuinely feeding upon his flesh and his blood. Well, then we are also in fellowship with the saints who are, they just happen to be disembodied, but they're in heaven participating in that great cloud of witnesses as intercessors and their strength and their giftedness are realities that foster in the church a, per, a perpetual faithfulness to the gospel and to Christ. And when, if we think we're just going to approach the text of scripture and come away with those understandings with the worldview that most of us are coming out of, it doesn't happen. People find it radically disproportionate. You know, it's like all of our Pentecostal friends who might be listening right now. I'm going to venture that most of them don't know that the, um, we'll call it the revival of speaking in tongues, right? That happens at Azusa Street. That was given in a dream by a couple of the apostles to the man who was housing William Seymour the night before he received the gift, right? So this, this is one of the differences between like the Roman Catholic and then the Orthodox and other Protestant groups, is in Angl- including ourselves as Anglicans. Um, you don't have to have been canonized <laughs> by the Pope or another you know, body to be part of that heavenly cloud of witnesses. 
And automatically, you know, you can kind of hear somebody saying, well, I don't believe any of that stuff. Well, that's fine. But we believe the Bible. And the scripture teaches us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. They're not our intercessors to God because we need them to secure graces for us. No, Jesus has already provided all of that himself. But we do partner with him. We receive strength from them. They are praying for us. And that's, that's often what's going on, you know, when you find a church named after a particular saint. It's a recognition that there is something about the quality of grace that God worked in that individual that that congregation is seeking to embody and emulate and, you know, that seeking the advocacy of that saint in heaven. So, like, when, when would you say that this happens? Like, the, when are we, I guess, inducted? Like, when does that happen into the communion of the saints? Um, because we've already established that it's, it's, it's a heavenly group. It's an earthly group that are still joining together as one. Um, when does this happen? Baptism. Baptism is when you die. And baptism is when you rise. It happens in baptism you, because that's when you're added into the body of Christ. So you become part of the body of Christ and um, you're there. I mean, you've got, you've got the experience of judgment after your, your body dies. You know, you go into judgment. Augustine, you know, he writes a good deal about this. Um, you know, and this is where purgatory, the, the ground, the, the basis for purgatory, purgatory as a, as not just an experience, but a place really starts to come to, to light in the minds, especially in the Western tradition of the church. Um, the East doesn't have, the Eastern church doesn't have the same schema, so to speak, but they do acknowledge some sort of judgment seat. Right there, there's some sort of experience of judgment, and you see that with the magisterial reformers. They're preserving that same thing, and while they jettison purgatory as a place, they retain purgation as an experience. You do have some reformers who chuck all of that and say we're completely and totally, utterly perfect when the body dies, and we go right into the God's presence, and there's no giving an account for the evil that we've done, or put it this way, there's no giving an account for our, the status of our lives that we didn't deal with beforehand. I mean, every Eucharist is principally an ex- a mini experience of the judgment seat. We're supposed to be offering to God our sins for absolution, to hear that pronouncement of absolution, and then to draw near to Christ. Well, when the body dies, your soul goes to judgment. You go to give an account of some kind. What that looks like, the length of that, how that shapes out, I mean, Christian history is filled with some bad theology, some good theology, but then I would just point people to to the metaphors that poets and, and good writers have used to try to give us an understanding without being overly literal, right? And so if you do that, then you can, you can read Dante and his stuff on pur- pur- purgatory, you know, his paradise, and purgatory, uh, inferno, um, and heaven. You can read those things. And not read them literally, but look at the way the poet or the writer is pressing truths in a way for us to chew on them. Uh, you want something a bit more contemporary? Read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. And for those who aren't familiar with it, and you can listen to like the whole thing on YouTube now, Lewis basically describes, uh, and The Great Divorce being the body separated from the soul, he, he describes it like uh, being in a town that's gloomy, and it's rainy, and the bus comes by to pick you up. And you get on the bus, and as you're riding on the and the guy's riding on the bus, you know, and he realizes he's dead, and he realizes oh, everybody on the bus is dead, that they're all ghosts, right? They're all they're all disembodied people. And he sees out the windows just darkness. Darkness as far as you can see, with various stars 
out in the darkness. And the, the book is the steady rise of this bus up into basically the antechamber to heaven. Like at the, you're at the door of paradise and the ghosts, some of them get off the bus um, and they go to step on the grass, but it hurts their ghostly feet because the grass is too real. Anyway, I mean, it's, it's just a fantastic book. And again, audiobook you can listen to where Lewis is just, you know, he's using stories, a large, a long, longer story. And it's not a long book to press scriptural truths to reflect upon what is this like? We don't know. You know, I, I know that while we, scripture is filled with metaphor. And so we don't want to denigrate the metaphor. Like people do this with hell. They'll talk about, well, you know, hell is not real tangible fire. It's torment. But the problem is every time somebody says that majority, they end up using a metaphor that doesn't convey torment to talk about hell. So we have to be careful with that. But there is an experience of judgment seat, and Paul uses the bema seat that was common for the Corinthians and the other, other parts of the Roman world. Like Pilate sits on a bema seat when he passes judgment on Jesus. So it's a metaphor of giving an account and of being brought to judgment, you know, or in the Old Testament and in the Revelation, the books are opened. Well, I mean, we've come a long way from books. We have tape recorders and video screens and all kinds of stuff now. <laughs> so there is an experience of judgment. And Scripture calls us to be cognizant of it, says it's terrifying, and says we're going to give an account for every deed done in the body. Um, another example, Caleb, since you're, you're thinking about it, um, in Christian history, is A Christmas Carol from Charles Dickens, right? I mean, if you read the book and look at some of the, the movies, not the Christmas Carol from Walt Disney, um, Scrooge opens the door and he sees all these ghosts floating around town and they can't help the people who need help. You know, Jacob Marley shows up wrapped in chains. You know, he's not able to give help for, for the time that they that he needed. You know, he's wrapped in chains, what, seven years or something? All of that is fiction, but it's the writer trying to convey there is an experience after death that is scary. And I'm bring up Augustine again, because Augustine says even the people who are having that experience, who are part of the body of Christ, have that guaranteed assurance that they will join the saints in light. They will be part of that, right? And I think as far as contours go, that's a good metric for us with the recognition that throughout Christian history, you know, the church has gotten too dogmatic about particulars. And I think we want to avoid that. And then it gets too, uh, too, too cheap grace that there is no giving an account to recognize that there's, there's some variety in that. Baptism is your entrance into the body of Christ. What your experience, your particular experience of judgment is like before you pass on to that, you know, paradise of God and into the beatific vision. We don't have scriptural precedent for knowing what that is, you know, but to say that if you're in paradise, you're in the presence of God. That's what Jesus tells the thief. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And in the old Greek Old Testament, paradise was the Garden of Eden. So there's something that's going on where he's like, he's saying, you're going to be with me in this Edenic paradise. I'm going to give you life. But then when you read the end of the Revelation and God appears on his throne, heaven and earth flee. That beatific vision uh, to behold God in his unmitigated glory is something that's reserved for the end. And from what we can tell, certain people are given access to that before others. And that's based upon the Revelation. Because you've got martyrs who are still martyrs. Like they're, they're, the recognition that they are martyrs and something about them is carried into eternity, eternity that they are martyrs. And in Revelation 6, when they're under the altar crying out for justice. 
uh, the 144,000, how they follow the Lamb wherever he goes, right? Who we are now, just like with Samuel in the Old Testament, who we are now and how we live now is what we are on the other side. And there's there's a legitimate judgment that takes place, and it's it's reckon it, right? Deal with that with the knowledge that that is to be, you're with Christ. That judgment is being with Jesus. <laughs> you got to give an account first and he's, then he'll wipe away the tears, right? Then you go into these other venues or aspects like outer court, inner court, holy of holies, this kind of stuff. And that's, that's fully conscious, interactive experience until the resurrection, bodily resurrection. I think the, the, the big question that I, that I have in all this is it seems like throughout history and even there's some that still retain much of the, I don't know, the tradition. When did these ideas start to to split? Because um, you even look at some of the early reformers, and they still very strongly hold to like the communion of the saints in a historical and traditional idea. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Wh- when do we start seeing that split? Are there any like key players that start to say, hey, I don't think this is the case? Um, because it's not early reformers, because you see a lot of them still holding to that. Well, you watch a change in Luther, you, you see his ideas kind of start to to change. So, for example, from what we know, the man prays a rosary every day. You know, he's he he is in very involved in a Marian devotion. You know, he's talking to her all the time. And some of his earlier writings, he actually acknowledges he's trusting that his work will be successful because of her intercession. Right. So he's he's very cognizant of this. Um. Uh, Zwingli, memorialist par excellence, the guy who's who's the chief proponent of that, retains the Angelus, you know, the 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 call and response between Gabriel and Mary, in his services. Calvin, very very very, uh, like he considered his devotion to Mary to be more genuine and sincere than what he saw with some who prayed the rosary. Which, from what I understand, everything I know about Calvin is he didn't do that, but he sought to teach his people to emulate her faith. So it, it, I think. It, most of the the collapse of the communion of the saints is from the radical Puritans in the latter part of the 1500s that kind of gets peeled back for a while. But then with the rise of the Enlightenment, you get the rejection of miracles and the spiritual world altogether. And so the first thing that really suffers from that isn't the virgin birth and the resurrection, it's the communion of the saints. That goes first. And you see that whittled down in practice, like it's practically not kept by many of the later um, Protestant and then rising evangelical traditions because they are falsely supposing it to be magic and idolatry because they, they just, they're ignorant of history. They just don't know it, which is why they, they can't even judge it properly, right? I mean, that's, that's, you see that really kind of rippling out from the part, eh, late 1500s, but then it gets really strong in the 1700s and whatnot. Um, the rejection of Christian history tradition, patristic witness, and then that's happening with the the enlightenment, that if I can't measure it, it's not true. And then, I mean, as with everything, superstition, uh, man, look, we talk about this with the gifts of the spirit here all the time, abuse and misuse lead to disuse. Mm-hmm. So if every other day somebody's having a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary and they're having tea together, right? I mean, that doesn't really lend itself towards the, the conviction that this is true. You know, it's like people who go around and they, they prophesy stuff. God told them every other day and, and they're wrong 90% of the time. Well, then, you know, and then, you know, a broken clock is right twice a day. So they're only maybe prophesying, quote, 
accurately 5% of the time. Well, they're so sloppy in what they've done that they're actually bringing disrepute to the gift itself. It's the same principle with anything, especially with the communion of the saints in a, an enlightenment worldview. And so you see the press within the, the larger Anglican communion that we, we, we are openly advocating and acknowledging that we pray with them and we want to preserve that, which is why we still have the calendar. And that, that, that practice of having saints on the calendar goes back to the early church when it was um, more or less like your local local saints, you know, the local heroes you, you acknowledge. You'd go to their graves. Augustine writes about this. Chrysostom writes about this. Uh, like the catacombs. I and mean, what's it like if you're, in, you're a Roman Christian in the early empire before Christianity is legalized and you're having church with your dead martyrs like in the wall next to you? There's a whole different psychological change there. You are literally underground um, because the, the English word cemetery comes from the Latin word to sleep. And it was what the Christians called their graveyards. The, the, the Rome had a different name. You know, it's where they put their dead. But the church is acknowledging these people are asleep and they're waiting for the resurrection. Oh, by the way, we're still worshiping together. I mean, so if you go look into the catacombs on the walls, all of the Christian art, the, the chief principle mosaic is Christ as a good shepherd. And then the next two pictures that are prevalent all over the place are pictures of the Blessed Virgin Mary and then St. Peter, usually with his keys. So you've got all of the, because he, you know, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, right? So you've got all of this in the artwork that's being preserved, recognizing these people are gone, but they're still here. Or put it this way, they're gone and we happen to be with them where they are in the spirit. John 14 and John 17, uh, John 12, 14 and 17, those different chapters, Jesus talks about being with him where he is. And he's not talking about geography. He's talking about how he has spiritually created a place for us to relate to the father. Um, so you celebrated your local martyrs and then when Christianity becomes legalized, well, the number of martyrs goes down. So now you begin to celebrate your heroes. And as people find out who's celebrating who you get a, a, a more comprehensive calendar of particular saints that are celebrated by everybody. You know, you, I mean, Chrysostom says, go to their grave sites. You're going to receive blessings. Augustine is opposed to miracles until he starts hearing about healings at the shrines you know, of the saints who have died. And he says, go, go touch them. It's Elisha's bones. If Elisha's bones can raise a dead man, how much more these saints who are part of the body of Christ? So this is, this, and that becomes the practice, you know, a little further in Christian history is that to acknowledge, you know, uh, intercommunion amongst the churches, they would share the relics, you know, the fragments of bone or, or clothing or whatever that belong to saints to say, we we're recognizing each other here. We're all part of one body. So a huge deal uh, seven or eight years ago when Pope Francis sent to uh, Bartholomew, the patriarch of Constantinople, f- bone fragments from Peter. They, they discovered St. Peter's actual burial place, his bones, in the 1950s. Um, the, the whole story there, it's pretty incredible. They, weren't, they, they couldn't believe it, but I don't want to get to that too much. Again, you know, guys, I really think it's the worldview changes. I mean, in the ancient Roman Empire, everybody talked to their ancestors when they died. They, they, they talked to them. They, that was part of their, their worship. They prayed to them. And this is why people get confused, um, because Scripture says, you know, no necromancy. The Old Testament, don't talk to the dead. Well, the New Testament would still say, don't talk to the dead who aren't in Christ. You know, you know that's gone. But the New Testament's emphatic that Christ is giving us a better covenant. 
And if Samuel and Moses and Elijah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, if all of the, if Jeremiah and Onias, if all of these people are alive in the presence of God, how much more of a recognition do we have that they're alive in the new covenant, which is what Hebrews is teaching us and Revelation is showing us. So it's not just in in that world, like for us, we have to convince ourselves that there is existence after the body dies. In the ancient world, that wasn't it. The gospel actually said this, yes, you've been talking to these people, but you need to understand, one, they're not God. Two, they really are alive and they're they're, they're praying for you. So do your best to obey the gospel with the grace that God's giving you. And you see that all through Christian history, all through the early fathers. Like that's not, that's not a late medieval development. It's all very early. I think one thing also uh, I'll go ahead and ask is um, the mindset of like, what is the purpose for um, prayer with the saints as opposed to just praying to Christ directly? I usually get that kind of question. Yeah. Well, I mean, why, why ask me to pray? You know, how many people ask me to pray for them? You know, even before I was a priest, let's pray. And so as far as the gospel is concerned, is there a difference between being in the body and out of it? Yes, there is a distinction. But the gospel is telling us that who we are and what we are is retained after death. We're all one in Christ. Having people pray with me, whether they're people you know, sitting at the table or people in that great cloud, that's all intercession I want. I want them all praying for me. And in larger Anglican practice, what you have is the advocacy of the saints. So by naming them, we are, we are talking to God, you know, oh God, we give you thanks for the saint's name or whatever, um, not or whatever, that sounds sacrilegious. It's the saint's name and what, you know, something about them very often and the petition that God would then take what he did in them and work it in us. So that's one of the Reformation distinctives that I think is a right thing to preserve because we don't want to fall into some kind of false sense of idolatry and, or, or that kind of thing. But we're rightly acknowledging that we're praying with these people and they've been, they've been praying for us. They, they, they really are. There's great solace in this. So it's not so much, why can't I just talk to Jesus? I mean, of course, talk to the Lord. But we ask people, we have people praying for us here all the time. Like we do that. That's part of our practice. And throughout the course of the celebration of the Eucharist, I mean, we've got saints, their feast days, we name them like this. Just this past Sunday was um, the feast for, for Mary, St. Mary, you know, the Theotokos. The calendar is full of other people that we're celebrating and honoring. We name them, you know, especially we, we, it's in some of the prayer books. There actually is a, a blank space for you to insert at the synaxis, you know, that we, he may dwell in us and we in him. And then that last day, bring us with all your saints, including, and you put in that person's name, like we're acknowledging, we're all praying together. We're all with one another as the body of Christ. So I don't think it's so much one or the other, as much as it is, we are consciously praying with them to one God. Okay. And that's only possible because of what Jesus did and how the Spirit constitutes a singular body. Yeah, and I, I think for me that was a very big perspective change um, because like you had talked about, um, you know, misuse and abuse lead to disuse. And that was where a lot of the misconceptions and the ideas that I, why I had objections, once those were, um, I guess like once those objections were answered, and really correctly, like, directed and kind of put in the right perspective, like, a lot of this began to make more sense. And a lot of it was that analogy you would use. I can't tell you. I think, in the, I mean, yesterday obviously was, not yesterday, but uh, Sunday we were in service. Um, even, like, this weekend uh, we were at the church. And I, 
uh, a big thing is, oh, get your intercessors to help you with this. Like if mm-hmm. you're dealing with this, get intercessors and even, um, you know, the prayer to the people. Right. We're joining our voices together in prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all of us together here, you know, Lord in your mercy, hear a prayer. So if we're if we're asking the people to join us in prayer, they're like to our left and to our right, and we really have the same obstacles in 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 the way of truly inter, like petitioning and asking and, and even giving thanksgiving. Why would you not ask those to join you in prayer? That you, well, like, you know that's right. what they're there like they're there and they're doing that already like it just it, it really clicked for me that was like to me the big game changer when i began to have that perspective and to think like that yeah i, I think one of the difference one of the nuances i don't want to say it's different but the new one of the nuances is that that, that heavenly triumphant body is already in prayer like that's an eternal reality that they are they are in right and so for us it's more or less our our um awareness that we're praying with them, right? And that we are the recipients of their prayer and of their legacy. I mean, we wouldn't be here if they hadn't been faithful in their generation. We wouldn't have the Bible. We wouldn't have the doctrines. We wouldn't have the creeds or the councils. None of that would exist if they hadn't already done the work. So we're already the recipients of that apostolic succession in a very real and tangible way. So we like that's the historical reality, and the gospel teaches us that God has been at work in history through the church, and it just so happens that there's, there's this entire church militant or church victorious, triumphant, you know, and we are caught into that cloud as it were. And again, there are times, man, the Holy Spirit just peels back your vision, and you perceive that they're with you. Um, that's a huge. Who doesn't want that benefit, right? I mean, I, that's that's a, some of this stuff is like you're you're afraid of what, like I, I just you know, yeah, and and even like re, like um, realizing that like uh, for me personally, I come from multiple generations of of Christians. I'm not the, I'm not the first, and I don't think I'll be the last. You know, and I know that those people when they were with us here on they prayed for me. Yeah. And my brothers, you know, my my parents and all those around me specifically. And I, there's been many situations that I've looked back and like, you know, Lord, why why me in this situation? Like why have I been granted, you know, blessing in this or or wisdom or what whatever like that advantage would be and almost like, you know, like why? And I think when you begin to work in the communion of the saints, it starts to make sense mm-hmm. that you like if like for example, my grandfather and my grandmother very much so people of prayer. They love the Lord. That's was in their daily routine, a lot of prayer there. And why, why would they not like, right. what, what, you know, and I think they have a, a are, greater are understanding not, of what right. to pray for. But Absolutely. Are they not praying for you now? Right. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing. Have they, have they, are they no longer lifting you to the Lord? And the teaching of revelation says, no, they are very much. So you and everybody else, I mean, that other, other, these other venues, that's, other venues that that's really going on. And I think that just saying, Oh, well, that's encouraging. I think it's very much so selling short the, the power and the efficacy of what is actually happening there. And these are, these are not just encouraging, like, you know, like you see, like someone talks about also, and so passed away or they're going through hard times, like thoughts and prayers, you know, it's right. not, it's not just those feel good thoughts. Like these, this is a real tangible, um, empowerment. I mean, really that's happening is that pe- like they are literally petitioning, on your behalf and real tangible things are happening. That's right. 
That's right. They're, they're, they're really praying for us. You know, one of the things I'd like to, to, to just lift to the Lord sometimes, based upon the pictures, you know, in Revelation, I said, Lord, let that incense come rushing before your face and respond to us, you know. Um, in the prayer book, like if you open up to, you know, the morning and evening prayer, you're going to pray with Simeon, and you're going to pray with the Blessed Virgin Mary, and you're going to pray with the three Hebrew, um, they're not really children, but, you know, the, the Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're going to pray with all of these people because their prayers that they prayed are in the prayer book. So you're praying with their historical words, but those historical words are sacramentally still a very real thing happening in heaven. So we're praying with these people and often using the very words that they used in prayer. So it's a very strong reality, and it's not just biblical characters, but it's John Chrysostom. You know, so we conclude morning and evening prayer often with a prayer from John Chrysostom. The two, wherever two or three are gathered together in your name, that you will grant their requests. And so then there's that petition. You know, grant us our petitions as seems best to you, as best for us. Right? That we're praying with them consciously. That is that is a great comfort, great really, strength. A hundred percent. I think the fact that a lot of times when you hear about this, it's it's like very um, lofty. So it's just all oh, just you know just praying some some rosaries after you know, either confession or something like it, you know, it's it, so many times I, I thought of it as like this lofty, um, disembodied, I think probably would be the best way to like, it wasn't something that actually impacted me mm-hmm. in my life. But I, like I said, looking back in situations that I should not have come out in the way that I did. Um, and many did not come out as fortunate as, as myself. I, I can't help but like the practical, real, what is happening, um, you know, in those chambers and what is happening because of those people's petition. Yeah. You know, the more focused we are in, in acknowledging and living into this reality of the communion of the saints, the less likely we are to engage in innovations. We won't change the doctrine. We won't change the practices. We won't change because we recognize we are inheritors and we have received and we need to pass on what we have received without adding and without taking away. So I mean I think this is a good a good thing for the community of the saints. Yeah, I think that that pretty much, you know, I think we 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 got to the top pretty well, I think. I think, you know, it's it, it, there there might not be too many more questions. I, I we did such a good job. No one even has to wonder. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. know. I think we're going to have some questions or people are going to have questions about this Caleb, but that's kind of the point. Especially for those who never heard about it. Right on. Yeah. But yeah. Um so I guess we'll go ahead. We have some questions for this week. We do. We do. So that's we'll go ahead and run through those. So what was one of the questions, I think, from, I don't want to say his name. but Yeah, so I'm going to just read it because it's kind of a question and a statement slash thought-provoking, Okay, you know, at, at the same time. Um, so this is this is what they said. It's, it's also really difficult to overcome the whole... Constantine put the Catholic Church in place, and it's structurally all pagan, pagan syncretism, hmm. that, that thing that I've always heard. I've never looked into that myself, but it's what everyone's always said, which I, I'll echo that myself, that you know I've heard that a lot. I know that my Pentecostal friends here in their local area look at me when I'm like I'm crazy when I tell them that the healthiest church in town 
that I've been to is the Roman Catholic Church. Shots fired. <laughs> That's probably true. I don't know. I mean, it was very well possible that the healthiest church there is the Roman Catholic Church. Um, plenty, plenty of places in the world where that's the case. Uh, no, Constantine did not establish a church. If the and if the people who were said that kind of stuff were, you know, honestly, if they were intellectually honest, then they're saying Constantine created the Bible too, which is not true. Did Constantine make? It was was he the first em, emperor to become Christian and then to grant certain privileges to the to the Christian faith to the church? Yeah, he did. But that's a lot better than being persecuted, I think. You know, being having to meet in the catacombs. So no, Constantine did not establish the church, and he did not establish the Roman Catholic Church either. Uh, let's see. Constantine converts after he has a vision of the cross in the sky, makes Christianity legal, and then decides to move the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to the city he builds, Constantinople. Uh, so you know, and then after he dies, his sons he he splits the, the empire between east and west, and. Ta-da, we end up with a Western Empire and an Eastern Empire when Byzantium comes out of that. Mm-hmm. No, no, he did not start the church. Was he influential? Yes. Did he make um, some changes in the sense that he pulled them together and said, you guys have to agree? Yeah. Like Constantine calls the First Council of Nicaea and makes the bishop, doesn't make, provides the space for them to discuss and to come to conclusions together in a way that hadn't existed since essentially Acts chapter 15. You know, it, it wasn't safe to do this. So you see this involvement in the beginnings of Christendom to start to rise, which I still think is a far better cry than what we're seeing today with our, with our Western liberal atheism, which is so confused it can't tell the difference between its right hand and its left. So Constantine did not start the church. He was a key figure in Christian history, but he didn't start the church. And I think my my thoughts added to this is, I mean, if anything, maybe through even just geography and uh, the tradition that falls out of this area, um, maybe you could say that the Eastern Orthodox, you know, I think more so than even like the Roman Catholic Church, really the rise of the Roman Catholic Church was because of Constantinople and the, um, you know, the, the Eastern Roman Empire having to just defend itself and say, hey, I'm sorry, but y'all are on your own. And, you right. know, I mean, I think more, I mean, that would be a more historically accurate way to perceive that. Right. Yeah. The contemporary Roman Catholic Church is more a result of Charlemagne and the collapse of the Roman Empire and the rise of the Holy Roman Empire centuries later, the rise of the Papal States. Well, the Papal States have been gone for a long time. And Western Christendom as a unified empire has been gone for hundreds of years. So even the Roman Catholic Church as it is today, I mean, this this is why the apostolic succession is not a um, a particular very narrow uh, thread that you know is is a uh, can be easily manipulated. You know, it, it it's much more comprehensive and nuanced than, than we want to acknowledge. And the way that the church has impacted nations and been impacted by nations, we have to pay attention to that stuff. And at no point can we say, as it pertains to the larger Catholic bodies, the tradition, capital T, of what the whole church is, did any particular nation make it? But they're always obviously influential in the same way that American culture is highly, you know, um, influenced by the very Protestant liberal ideas that said the Bible isn't true and there are no miraculous events and the rise of all of the Christian cults that have become super popular since they started in the 1800s. 
you know, that's probably too honest, I guess. <laughs> I think I think the other part of his question, so we, we kind of talked about like the Constantine put the Catholic Church in place. What about the other side, um, the structurally all pagan syncretism? And I, I think what I've seen rise, and it's not new because we've seen it throughout history, is like all uh, Christmas, Halloween, Easter, but they're all just, and I think we had another listener kind of pop a question like this up earlier, maybe a few, about a month ago, that it's all just... Uh, you know, it's all it's all because of the pagan. We just we just borrowed it from them. Um, well, there's nowhere to go on the world, in the world at any point where there haven't already been people with a culture. It's just not possible. And Christ is talking about this in the Gospels when he talks about the kingdom of God being like yeast or a little seed. So if if we go with the line of reasoning that oh well the celebration of our holidays are pagan and they come from pagan it's pagan syncretism, are these people who say this have they jettisoned the days of the week? Thursday is Thor's day, Wednesday is Woden's day, Friday is Freya's day, Sunday is the sun god's. I mean, like, we still use those names, and we're not by any means invoking Norse gods when we use the days of the week. You know, so it's just all, think about the names for our months, January, Janus, the two-faced god, right? I mean, this this stuff is, is just absurd. Um, every culture here is supposed to hear the gospel and the gospel then corrects that culture. You know, the gospel judges every culture and in the process of judging it heals, strengthens, forms. I mean, it's shaping and building something that Christ is, uh, you know, subsuming into the kingdom. He's bringing it into the kingdom. You know, so in revelation, what do we see in heaven around the throne, but every tribe and language and nation, you know, uh, and tongue, all these things are going on. All that's going on. So, no, 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 no. That I, syn- Do you have things, syncretism, that get uh, enmeshed in the church? Yes. I think bigger issues in the American church is the baptizing of business models for church growth principles and the adoption of uh, particular ideologies about prosperity and blessing because of material prosperity as a sign of God's favor. And the, none of that's true in the New Covenant. That stuff's not true the way that it's presented. So you have radical syncretism, but most of that is not present within the historic Catholic forms, but in the contemporary, you know, Protestant free church model. That's where the syncretism is, where we can conduct ourselves as Christians without being under the authority of bishops, not having a rightly ordained priesthood to administer the sacraments. That's actually biblical. It's the other side. It's that free, I can do as I please because the Holy Spirit told me, which is closer to the spirit of Antichrist than the other. So what I'm hearing you say, uh, hey, Kettle, this is pot, you're black. Yes. That's that's what I'm hearing (laughs) in this situation here. (laughs) Right, right, right. We are always in danger of uh, hearing from the Lord like Job. Who is this who darkens my counsel without knowledge? Like there's a lot of stuff that we think we know about that we ought not to speak about. And I feel like a lot of folks, not just feel, but I mean, it's observably true. A lot of people go critiquing the church and the forms and the traditions by like fifth hand information about facts that were never right to begin with. And so they, they actually genuinely show themselves to be more ignorant while they think they're being wise. It's just not healthy. A hundred percent. I think even uh, our season one was about a lot of his, his, his History, just packed with history, yeah. looking about what was happening. And you, you can even see different ways of observing that. But I think for me, what it did was it said, hey, you know, my, my, my Roman and Eastern Orthodox, you know, friends, like, hey, let's become better friends. Like, I respect what you're doing more because I understand directly what the history is. Yeah. 
Yep, it helps knowing things. You know? <laughs> <laughs> really does. But uh, I don't know. Or you could just sit there silently with nothing in your head all day, whatever you want. <laughs> well, <laughs> however you want to live your life, I guess. But well, I think that kind of does it for this week for communion of the saints. Uh, once again, I'm Caleb, and I'm here with Adam and Dub Daryl, and we'll see you all later. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.